The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What I want to talk about today is mindfulness as an intimate practice. Mindfulness as an intimate practice. Just that muffling into the mask reminded me, if, if I fall into, you, know, you can't really hear me because my voice falls and it's muffled, wave your hand at me or something and I, I'll come back to life. <laughs> so, so I'm going to read you, uh, first of all, the first stanza of a poem. Life has left her footprints on my forehead, but I have become a child again this morning. The smile, seen through leaves and flowers, is back to smooth away the wrinkles as the rains wipe away footprints on the beach. Again, a cycle of birth and death begins. Life has left her footprints on my forehead, but I have become a child again this morning. The smile seen through leaves and flowers, is back to smooth away the wrinkles as rains wipe away footprints on the beach. Again, a cycle of birth and death begins. This is the opening stanza to Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Message, from his book, Call Me By My Names, My True Names, Call Me By My True Names, which is perhaps his most famous poem. And um, I, was, I was struck by the first line, actually. It's the first poem in the book. I opened the book, and there it was. Life has left her footprints on my forehead. In these times of uncertainty and troubling events and striving to do the right thing, it's important to think of practice both as a meditation practice and as a life practice. What I want to talk about today is how mindfulness can be befriended in our lives, to be incorporated into our lives in such a way that it doesn't become a task or one more thing we have to do, that we don't pay so much attention to that technique that we miss the joy of awakening in this moment as a child with the footprints on our forehead erased by the flowers and the leaves that we see. What we want, mindfulness is really a a calling to awareness, bringing things into awareness. How do we do that without making it another job that we have to do? How do we become so used to awareness and how to notice what we notice that it doesn't become, that it becomes just how we live our lives and not well, I have to remember what is the object of my... I'm going to focus on my feet. I'm going to focus on my walk. I have to stop doing what I'm doing to be mindful. I want us to lose that feeling, to lose that imperative that to be mindful, I have to stop what I'm doing. Not that there isn't value in stopping. The memories we carry of our experiences are stored in our bodies. These are the footprints across our forehead. You know, all, of the, the, all of the experiences that we have have somehow passed through our awareness and have been registered somewhere. 
and we have neural patterns that are established. The brain actually decides what to do with a set of conditions long before we've had time to think about it. It's, it's truly just, it happens. Not to mention our own mind habits, where we have a certain way of dealing with a set of conditions where we actually have some choice about it. What we fail to notice is that we have changed. We have changed. It's too late to be who we once were that all of these habits are braced on. We've already changed. In each moment, we are different than the moment before. I've had this book of, uh, of Thich Nhat Hanh's poetry for many years, and this particular poem never caught my eye. I've you know, periodically go through it and look for another poem. That one never caught my eye until yesterday because I've been thinking about how to come to a realization that I am not who I once was. Now, I've said that to myself many times. I've said that to, to people who've talked to me many times. You're not who you used to be. But to suddenly realize I'm really different. Someone this week that I've seen only over Zoom for the last year and a half, two years, said, you know, I went to Audio Dharma and there's a picture of you. I didn't recognize you. Your hair is longer. You just look different. Your glasses are different. I wouldn't have known it was the same person. Imagine how much change there is that is not physical. Our physical characteristics really don't fit change all that much. I can look at a baby picture of my grandchildren and know immediately who it is. And yet, we don't allow for all of those same changes in how we show up in the moment. And because I've repeated that phrase over and over again, how just show up as you are, it occurred to me that maybe you don't have a clue what I mean by that. So I've been struggling with how do I talk about this that is not just my convenient words that I use to talk about the way I experience mindfulness. And the curious thing is uh, yesterday I wrote, I wrote a talk and I got about four-fifths of the way through it and I realized it was almost identical to the talk I gave a month ago. And I said, oops. <laughs> Because this topic is up for me. So I started over again. And I said, okay, I'm going to use this method. And, and then I went to a concert last night. And I threw all of it away. <laughs> so the concert I went to last night was um, Maria Snyder and her big band. The concert was at Stanford. She's a jazz player, composer. She's won seven Grammys both classical and jazz. She's a really amazing woman. And she had this 18-piece band. But before the concert, there was an interview. And the interrogator said, well, so what is jazz? And her answer just blew me away. She said, well, jazz is a conversation. And the important thing is that it requires listeners, both the players and the audience, the people listening to it, have to be have to have a conversation it's a conversation and i thought yes life is a conversation with our experience and mindfulness is how we listen so 
you've all been in a conversation where your mind is off forming a retort and you don't even hear what the person is saying. Or you're thinking, oh, I know what this person's going to say. They said the same thing last time and you're not listening. And the act of active listening is in fact mindfulness. It is bringing yourself into the moment and saying, what's new in this moment? What's different in this moment? What can I realize from this moment? It's actually completely vibrant. It isn't static in the sense that I'm just going to follow my breath. When we, when we do mindfulness in meditation, we follow our breath, but we don't ask the breath to be a certain way. We don't say the breath has to be deep, the, death have, the breath has to be shallow. The, we notice how the breath is. That's, that's the method we use. And the same thing is true as we go through every experience of our lives. We don't decide in advance what it's going to be or how it's going to be. We say, oh, how is it? What is this experience? What am I noticing here? When I thought about that, so the, the cycle of, of music that uh, the band played was from a double CD set they did, which had to do with, uh, the name of it was Data Lords. And on, on one CD, it was about uh, the chaos and the control of data and how involved we are in the technological world. And the other one was sort of, oh, yes, and there are all these benefits that come out of it. <laughs> and so some of the music was difficult to hear. It was hard to hear. And I thought, yeah, you know, sometimes as we're going through the day, some things are difficult to hear, difficult to experience. They're, they're, it's unpleasant. We call it unpleasant. We could just as well call it too loud. Sometimes our thoughts are too loud to be present for what's happening. Our beliefs about who we are in the moment are too loud to just say, oh, this is what's here now. But if we think of it more as a conversation with our immediate experience, it becomes less of something extra and burdensome. It, it's just, it becomes more flowing, more natural. It's, oh, this is what's happening. So I'm going to pause for a moment so that I can reassure Nancy your announcement was made. Now, I, I wanted to get that out of the way so I didn't think about it anymore because it was there, up, up. Okay, so I'm going to let that go so that, you know, I'm already improvising the talk, so let's at least, <laughs> let's at least stay with the topic, right? This, this is the listening that I'm talking about. This is the, the oh, this happened. When we get too attached to knowing what's going to happen or predicting what's going to happen, we actually fail to notice what is happening. There, uh, one of the other oddities of this jazz band was that there was an accordion. If you've never heard jazz accordion, <laughs> it, it just sort of boggles the mind. And... and um, She's, she talked about that and said, you know, the reason I have an accordion is they can play a high sustained note, which usually the band 
depends on the trumpets to do, but the trumpets run out of air. And you can play that note on the accordion for days. And I thought, how interesting. It was, it was not losing sight of the intention by insisting, well, I can't have a sustained high note because the band can't do it. It turns out if you don't get too attached to the plan, there may be another way to realize your intention. This is, this is really uh, crucial because a lot of the things, the places that we get tied up is when we think, I am, I'm going to be, let's take listening. I'm going to be a good listener. I'm going to just listen. I'm going to hear everything you're saying. And then something happens, and all of a sudden we're thrown into a memory. Oh, wait a minute. What was that about? And the mind is off, and then we, oh, no, no, I have to listen. And we give up the opportunity to find what was the trigger that set me off so that I can see that, so I can see what's happening here. If my attitude is to be present, my intention is to be present, is my attitude open enough that I'm, I'm present? Or is it guarded attention that I have? Am I just waiting? Am I on the edge? Or am I relaxed in my listening? How tightly am I trying how much effort am I putting into this? We call this wise effort because it isn't about how hard we try. It's about perseverance. We just keep, we just keep coming back to listen. Oops, back to listen. It isn't, I'm going to stay here no matter what. It is noticing what has arisen and allowing that to be true. Oh, this is here now. It's not, I'm a bad listener. Oh, look what was triggered. How interesting. This morning, I don't know for sure where this is going, but I noticed it, so I'm going to bring it up. So I, I put this ring on my finger. Now, I have owned this ring for, uh, I, I figured it out, 45 years. It was a gift to me. And, you know, most mornings I just put it on and it's just, you know, my hand feels right with it on. This morning I put it on and I thought, oh, this was actually a gift to me. And suddenly I recalled the person who gave me the gift. And I wondered, how is that person now? And I said, but it's just the ring. And then I went back to the ring. I I saw the temptation to reminisce when it was given to me, what it was like then. But I recognized that I'm not, you know, 45 years ago, person who first put this ring on her finger. I'm this person who is now doing something else, thinking something else, being present for something else. And that memory, while it is imprinted on me, doesn't have any reality in the present. It's not palpable in the present. The ring is. The ring is here. 
the physical reality of the ring is here, and I can just be here for that. And I can enjoy it or not enjoy it, or think about what it is that the inclusions that I find so interesting in this piece of turquoise. Okay, the value is in that, in my immediate reaction to what is here. In remembering the other person, it isn't about how I felt then, but how I feel now. And to realize there's some affection, even though the relationship is long gone. And to feel the affection now as something that is an experience of this moment, but doesn't define this moment, doesn't require me to justify it. The piece of affection does not have to have meaning doesn't have to fit into a scale or a story. It just exists on its own. This coming to allow things to just exist on their own without trying to fit it into some kind of pattern, which is kind of the normal thing. We want to make meaning out of everything. We want to establish the relationships between all our thoughts because it gives us a sense of solidity and it denies impermanence. It denies that we are not who we once were. So what we want to do is cultivate this ability to have this conversation with our experience. So how do we cultivate that? What, is it, what do I mean when I say cultivated? How does it not become another practice? Right? How does it not become one more thing I have to do, like meta practice or breath practice or any of the other things? It's about using our awareness as opposed to the mental formations of our experience. So here's what I mean by that. If I have a memory and I experience the memory, the natural thing is to start saying, well, now let me choose something a little different. Let's say I experience anxiety. Anxiety is here. And I can say, oh, I'm anxious, and start listing the stories and all the reasons for why I am anxious which, of course, only increases my anxiety. Or I can say, anxiety is here, and shift my awareness from what is anxiety to how do I feel about that? Now, you may think that being anxious is the feeling in itself, and it is. But when we shift our awareness around the corner and say, yeah, but what do I think about that? Then we notice something like, well, I want it to go away or we feel ourselves stepping back from it or leaning into it. And we notice that. And in noticing that, we are not tangled up in the story. We're not feeding it. We're not trying to control it. We're not saying it's bad. So noticing something that is unpleasant, that we wish was not true, we can either start off on the story about why we don't wish it to be true or how we want to fix it or I'm not a good person. 
Or we can say, that's shown up, but what do I know about that? How do I feel about that in this moment? What am I aware of in this moment? We become more adept at noticing our attitude towards something and less digging into the something. Does that make any sense to you? I'm going to see if I can think of it a good example for this. Um, so, very often when we fall into self-criticism, you know, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or I shouldn't have done that, we, we find ourselves falling into the middle of the praise-blame spectrum. So, there's, there's a sutta, describing the eight worldly winds. And they are, uh, they're sort of, they, they go together. And there is uh, praise and blame, gain and loss, uh, fame and disrepute, and um, it's pain and the absence of pain. I can't think right now what it's called. It's okay. <laughs> that was in the talk I discarded yesterday. Uh, but what I've been working with lately is is the praise-blame thing. Because it turns out a lot of the suffering that we cause for ourselves is because we try to establish blame for something happening. Or you know, we attribute it to something. It's like that meaning cycle that you get on. So, so I've, I find something happening, and when I have to mm, give responsibility for it, I can astri- ascribe it to myself or I can ascribe it to the other. So if I'm in a conversation with my experience, I might say, experience, you shouldn't be happening. This is not what I intended. And so I'm going to change that. And then we're in a struggle with it. But if we say, oh, that's happening. That wasn't my intention. How do I feel about that? Something else happens. It isn't that we're fixing it or making it go away, but we're seeing it in a different way. The awareness of it becomes slightly changed. So uh, I'll I'll give you a silly example. On the way here, I had to come to a sudden stop to keep from hitting a squirrel running across the road. And uh, my first thought was, oh, he made it. My next thought was, I'm so glad I was paying attention. And then the next thought was, oh, what a good mindfulness person you are. And I laughed. (laughs) That was an accident. It wasn't because I was mindful of the squirrel. I happened to be driving, looking for things. But it wasn't, to watch the mind switch into praise so quickly from just, oh, thank God he made it. I could laugh at that, and it makes me then more aware when I'm falling into praise and blame. More often, we're aware of blame. We blame the other, we blame ourselves. So, So one of the tasks that I'm engaged with all the time, because the person I spend most of my time with is my husband, is how the conversations between us go. And so... I pay great attention before I walk into his presence of what's going on in my mind. Where am I? 
because if I'm feeling very open and ebullient and easy and relaxed, the conversation, no matter what he does, usually goes well. And if I'm feeling irritable or rushed or jagged, the conversation has a great potential for running off the rails. It has nothing to do with him and everything to do with my attitude of mind. So when I notice that I'm irritable and jagged, I say, okay, I got to be careful here. I have to listen differently. I have to remember that this is not about the other person. And the calling to mind helps me with my intention, which is kindness to my husband. And then he'll do something that just reminds me and the thought comes up, he always does that. And I'll say, and you're very irritable. And being aware of that allows me not to make it his fault or mine. Irritability is here. It's not that I'm unkind. It is the very act of noticing it that is the act of kindness. We befriend ourselves when we use mindfulness to see just this. It isn't about whether something is good or bad. We're so used to thinking about things as being good or bad that we fall into the praise or blame cycle without thinking about it automatically. So, for example, having redone this talk three times, one thought that came up for me this morning was doubt. Oh, dear. What am I going to be able to do? I don't know what I'm going to say. How is this going to work? And when doubt arises, you can see it, and you can start listing all the ways that you should have done something differently, or you should have started sooner, or uh, I shouldn't be doing this at all. And you see those thoughts come and go. And you use doubt to say, oh, this is me wishing things were other than they were, wishing things were other than they are. Am I leaning into doubt? Am I pushing it away? How is that? Oh, doubt is here. And then I recall all the times I've been full of doubt. And I recall, this is just a conversation. Some conversations go well, some conversations do not. And there is ease in the moment along with doubt. And then my husband comes in and says, oh, you'll do great. And I'm thinking, praise. And at the same time, there's a voice saying, you don't know that. I don't know that. And I say, oh, doubt is here. And there's this interplay. It is the interplay that can be watched. Then judgment is missing. Because you're just watching things flash in and out, flash in and out, flash in and out. So we we use something like doubt, which of course we all want to get rid of, right? As a window to see through. It's not a door. It's a window to see through. All of the hindrances are windows to see through. To see, oh, this is what's happening now. And we get in the habit the habit of saying, oh, this is who's showing up now, this person with all her 
gifts and flaws and the experience of being in the room with these people and the experience of you know, uh, all of the things that came in with it. I didn't tell you that I had a technology failure last night after rewriting my talk for the third time or adding notes to it, that I couldn't save it. Actually, I could save it, I just couldn't re-access it. <laughs> I couldn't get it on my iPad. You just, what happened? A system that works perfectly well no longer works. Mystery. Fooling around with the technology and thinking... Well, okay. I found a workaround. I emailed it to myself. That seemed to work fine. <laughs> Who knew? You know, the technology became a barrier to my being able to talk to you. What a ridiculous notion. Of course, it was never a barrier. But to see the window of how I'm approaching the problem, the anxiety that arose, the uncertainty that arose, the, the irritation at these systems and so so it reminded me of last night's concert there was this uh, there was a, a really uh, noisy difficult to listen to piece but stunningly played you could just hear the musicianship and the way it fit together and it, it was intended to be about AI taking over and destroying humans. So you can imagine, it was cataclysmic. And, and at the end of it, you were just exhausted. And then she said, oh, and then there's this other piece that she composed after going to a, a Buddhist garden in Kyoto. <laughs> and it was sweet and melodic and gorgeous, just a gorgeous piece. And watching watching the the, the feeling of pushing back in your body and the leaning into and the relaxing and the made me realize the music was doing exactly what she intended that that the audience became engaged in the music and that's what i want in my life to be engaged in my life and to do that I've come to think more about awareness as my mindfulness tool and less about what I'm looking at. Less about, I should be paying attention to this thing. Or in order to achieve the stillness of meditation in the rest of my life, I should be equanimous. But to welcome both equanimity and chaos as ways to see how things are. It's like this. It's, oh, this is what's happening now. Who I am today is both distinguished from and different. It's of the past, but distinguished from the past. All of our experiences bring us to this moment but we don't have to be the person who had those experiences. We're the person who's having this experience. We're here for this one. So if I experience something, someone says to me something, and I experience shame, what do I do with something like shame? I see shame. I feel it curdling. I don't feel necessarily what I felt then, but I feel what I feel now. 
around shame. And I say, ooh, that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Would I do that same thing again? No, I would not do that same thing again. Ah, I'm changed. It's too late, I'm changed. Shame has no place here. Blame has no place here. Praise has no place here. I can feel joy and stop at joy. I don't have to say, oh, and this means I'm a good person. I can just stop there. I can say, oh, that's, that's what this experience is. I don't have to put the experience in a chronological order with everything that's happened in my life. Because, frankly, I've missed most of the conditions of my life. We can't be aware of all the conditions of our life any more than we're aware of all the conditions just in this room. Whatever my experience is right now, it is different from your experience because your attitude of mind is not my attitude of mind. Your experience of what it means to say it's like this is very different than mine. Your experience is unique to you, but not only unique to you, but unique to this moment. Sometimes we think, well, if I had it to do over again, I would do this, and then this would be what came from it. How do we know that? We have no idea how a changed decision on something in the past would unfold, except in our imaginations. So why burden ourselves with the past? It's something, you know, we we tend to take our experiences and stuff them in a bag and carry them around on our back to be pulled out when conditions appear to be the same, but conditions are never the same. And that bag just becomes something we're hauling around for no particular good reason. What we do want is to develop wisdom. The wisdom that comes from experience that says, oh, that feels terrible, that is tense, that is that causes me to curl up, it causes me to curdle inside, it causes me to lose the ability to speak, my throat muscles get tight, and I resolve not to go there again. I resolve not to do that again. Whatever the conditions are, I return to my intention in the moment. If my intention is to be kind, I have a picture of what I think kindness is going to look like. And then something else happens. But I can still return to my intention to be kind. It just doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. 
No, we, we, I was a scientist and businesswoman. This happened all the time. You'd put together a business plan. You'd have, you'd have a, a decision tree about when this happens, then this happens. And when this happens, you do this. And we have a goal and a timeline. And then, you know, a supplier falls through or the software fails or some, something happens. You think you've built time into your plan, but it's derailed. It doesn't mean it's a failure. You just start again, and you say, oh, okay, well, this could delay us, or we could plan another way, or it actually doesn't have to look this way. It could look a different way and be, be good. Good is use, use, it's useful to define what you mean when you say good. And I really try very hard to substitute the word skillful for good because good has attached to it wanting, not wanting, uh, shame and blame, praise and blame, gain and loss, pain and the opposite of pain. All of those things, they cause us to be distracted from life. And my intention is not to make my life look a certain way, not to become a certain person, to be skillful right now with these conditions. And to do that, I have to see clearly. That is how we develop wisdom. It's not just a kind of hedonism of the moment. It is through seeing clearly, wisdom is formed. Our ability to make skillful decisions rests on our ability to see clearly. To see clearly. I'm so far from my talk, my computer is shut off. <laughs> so, life is a conversation, and mindfulness is a way of listening. To listen, to be aware of what's happening. How can, how can I interact with this experience? By really listening, by really seeing. Whether I do it from listening or seeing or uh, awareness, it's, it's being involved in this moment without urgency. When, when I was leaving the house this morning, I was conscious of, of rushing. And I reminded myself that I only needed to move fast. I didn't need to rush. Rush implies there are going to be bad consequences if I don't get there faster. It's, it's extra stuff. But just moving quickly, efficiently moving. Oh, I could feel myself relax as soon as I let go of the rush thought. Just a moment of ease. But I was still moving quickly. And as I got in the elevator, I, I clasped this cushion to my chest, and I could feel my heart beating. And I could have paid attention to whether it was beating rapidly or slowly. Or, but what I noticed was how, how tender it was, that it felt fragile. 
And I, I hugged it like I was hugging a little girl. And I hugged the cushion there and my poor fragile heart. And I softened a little more. Now, it would have been possible to say, okay, what does this rapid heartbeat mean? This rapid heartbeat means I'm still rushing and I'm late and uh, what time is it anyway? But instead, I just felt the heart and allowed myself to be grateful that it was beating and not how it was beating. It's, it's arriving with a friendliness toward the moment. A friendliness toward the moment. Not, I don't have to be guarded against my own experience. I can just experience. And in the safety of the elevator, of course, I could be as tender with my little heart as, I, as it, it, nobody cared. Nobody was there. It was just me and my heart. That, that is the place of conversation with your experience. Just, just this. Everything does not have a life or death urgency attached to it. But when we're on guard all the time, on guard against our experience, it begins to feel that way. Just before we sat, I went out and I touched the the two women who were signing us in, and the three women, actually, and and I got to hug them. And we, we we all commented on the great joy of feeling. And I've lived my life on Zoom. The last two years have been all Zoom, all the time, I think. And, and the, the touch, the additional sensory input is so delicious. And to just enjoy that, irrespective of all of the things that we care about and worry about and are anxious about, uh, you know, the, the war in Ukraine is never far from my mind. As soon as I start thinking, what do I care about in this moment? It comes up. And each of us has a different experience of that. For me, it is mostly about people's lives being destroyed. And I think not only about... I I tried thinking about what would it be like to have my apartment blown away. I can't. I'm unable to imagine that. I can think that it it brings horror into my heart. Horror. But I can't actually imagine what it would be like. And the other day I heard a talk by Michael McFall, who was a former ambassador to Russia. And he runs a, a, a World Studies Institute at Stanford now. And he's had 300, they have had 300 Ukrainian students come through this, all of whom went back to Ukraine to become involved in the government, and they're all at risk or worse. And he talked to one of his former students is in the bunker with Zelensky. And he talked to him just a few days ago. And he talked to Zelensky a week ago. His experience of when he thinks of the war in Ukraine is much more personal and intimate than my experience, which rests on memory and imagination. 
because I have not had that direct experience of the people, the personal attachment to the people. And that means his experience when he wakes up and thinks about Ukraine is different than my experience, whatever else we may have in common. That's true. So I've chosen a big thing for illustration, but it's true no matter what. Your experience of children, how you experience children, how you experience family, how you experience food, all of the things of your experience have been conditioned by what has come before, but it does not determine your experience now. It simply is a background for your experience now. So to be aware of what's happening now is to allow your awareness to just come back to how are these memories, how are these experiencing happening now? Do I feel, how, how is it in my heart-mind now? Because that's how we set our conditions for the next moment. Do I allow myself to feel the fragility of my heart without fear? Or do I worry about what it could mean? The friendliness of the moment allows us to be just with this. So the, uh, the trigger that had me going to Thich Nhat Hanh wasn't, in fact, his recent death. It was talking with a woman yesterday who was celebrating the anniversary of her 38th year in this country. She came, she's Vietnamese, and she came, she was uh, one of the boat people, and she was uh, a babe in arms. And her mother had, when the boat began leaking and they couldn't pay pail the water out anymore. Her mother tied her and her brother to her waist so that at least if they drowned, their bodies would be together and somebody might find them all together. And she sees life, her life is extremely lucky. She celebrates this day like a birthday. Her experience of being a refugee She didn't have it as a child, but she has it in her mother's memories, and she has it in here I am today, and isn't this gorgeous? This is what I wish for all of you. Isn't life beautiful? Whether it is painful or unpainful, whether it is beautiful in in happiness, but I hear it. I hear it in all of its wisdom and its noise and its softness and its sweetness. And it's a great conversation. Thank you for your attention. So I've used up all the time, but if somebody has any comment they'd like to make, please please use the microphone. Okay, I think we made it. Thank you all very much. I wish you a wonderful day.